Now you may want a God that you can domesticate and manipulate after your own wills and plans. To put this into New Testament theology, you cannot receive Jesus as Savior and continue to spurn him as Lord because the New Testament knows nothing of this. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're studying the ministry of the prophet Elijah from the books of 1st and 2nd Kings. We've seen that God is disciplining the people of Israel with a drought in the land because their leaders, specifically King Ahab and his father before him, had forsaken the one true God and had worshiped Baal. We're in 1st Kings 18 and in a message entitled, The Great Showdown, we're going to see the power of God in a confrontation with the prophets of Baal. As we pick up in verse 19, Elijah boldly issues the first of eight commands to Ahab. I love this guy. He doesn't mince words. He just says it like it is. And so now Elijah issues a challenge. And by the way, as you read through the rest of this chapter, there's no question as to who is in charge. He doesn't really deal with Ahab because Elijah knows that Ahab is a pawn. He's a pawn in the hand of Jezebel, and Jezebel is a pawn in the hand of Satan who instigated and created Baal worship and idolatry. And so this spiritual conflict is critical because the nation of Israel and their spiritual vitality is at stake. So he speaks, as you look through the text, eight different times, and every time he speaks, Elijah takes the initiative. Every time he speaks, he gives a command. And I am reminded from this man's life that when our lives are clean, that there's a confidence, there's a courage that God is able to put in a clean heart, and God will give you the courage of your convictions to carry out his will. So Elijah's on the offense. Why? Because he knows that he's right. He knew where he stood. There's no insecurity in this man's heart. Now, in verse 19, he issues the first command, and this the great showdown. Notice, now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, or Carmel if you prefer, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. You can almost feel the electricity in the air. This is a challenge, and everyone loves a challenge. And so all Israel gathers up there on top of Mount Carmel. By the thousands, they stream up that mountain, which you have been, if you've been there, and many of you have been there with me, it has a commanding view of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, it's interesting to note the place that Elijah has selected. Mount Carmel is to Baal worship what Mount Calvary is to Christianity. Mount Carmel was the most sacred of all the Baal shrines because they believed that Baal literally dwelled on that mountain. Now, please notice the odds that are outlined for us in this verse. There are 450 prophets of Baal, and there are 400 prophets of the Asherah. Asherah was the female deity, supposedly Baal's girlfriend. And so these prophets are said to eat, notice, at Jezebel's table. She's a very beautiful woman, but a very wicked woman. She's helped financing, underwriting this demon-inspired worship. 
And her name today is synonymous with a shameless, aggressive, seductive woman. And so millennia later, we speak of a Jezebel kind of woman. But don't miss the point. Do you see how bold he is? He's saying, you get your 850 prophets who serve this so-called God Baal, and we'll meet at his place of worship there in Mount Carmel. I'll meet you on your own turf which obviously would have pleased Ahab because he had, in essence, the distinct advantage of being on his home turf. So verse 20 tells us, So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. There are two groups. The sons of Israel or the Jewish people who represent the ten northern tribes. And then there are the false prophets. Now hold that thought in your mind. It's very important to understand the conclusion of the entire narrative. Elijah in this chapter is going to address these false prophets who have led the children of Israel into false worship, into idolatry. Elijah wants to win these Hebrew people back to the worship of the one true God. And to do so, he's going to have to remove the priests from the land. So he begins by addressing the people and not the pagan priests. The priests are hardcore apostates. They have already made their decision. Their destiny is sealed, and you can reach a point in your life where your destiny can be sealed. Jesus in John 12 spoke of those men who had had light, but they did not respond to the light, and he warned them if they would not soon respond that darkness would overtake them. And then he said directly to some of the leaders in Israel that they could not believe for the simple reason that they would not believe. There is a line known only to God that you can cross where you cannot believe for the simple reason that you would not believe. And that's where these men are. But the people are undecided. And so here is Elijah, and he begins by preaching a short, clear, and concise sermon. Look at verse 21. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? The Hebrew text literally reads, if you have the NASB with marginal notes and you need a copy like that, it will be very helpful to your study of Scripture if you don't read Hebrew. How long will you limp on between two divided opinions? Elijah is saying, How long are you going to continue on the broad road? How long will it be before you get on the straight and narrow? How long will you limp between going back and forth? How long are you going to sit on the proverbial fence? He accuses them of the sin of indecisiveness. They're at a fork in the road. And he's telling them you need to make a decision. He'd have no sympathy for the politician when asked, well, are you for this issue or are you against this issue? Well, some of my friends are for it, some of my friends are against it, and I'm for my friends. He's not that kind of prophet. There's no political correctness. There's no neutrality when it comes to following the Lord. And I hope you know that you cannot walk a straight course unless you are sold out to the living God. You cannot live halfway for the Lord. Do you remember what Jesus said in John eleven twenty three? 23? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. If you're not for Jesus, 
you're against Jesus, if you're not gathering for him and his kingdom, don't delude yourself into thinking that you are for him because Jesus plainly said you are not. In Luke 9, 26, he said, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. Likewise, he said in Luke 12, And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man shall confess him before the angels of God, but he who denies me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. The prophets of Baal had already denied the living God. But the children of Israel had come to the hour of decision for their life, and they knew it. Now remember, the New Testament reminds us in many places that the Old Testament was written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. This is not simply what God has said. This is what God is saying. And God is still speaking through the prophet Elijah. How long? Will you hesitate between two opinions? God is still asking, how long are you going to be for me on Sunday and against me on Monday? How long are you going to be spiritual one moment and for the world the next? How long are you going to to go against the commandments of God? How long are you going to walk in spiritual infidelity? You must decide. How long are you going to live in compromise? If the Lord is God, he says, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. God is saying, you have to make a choice. There's no room for peaceful coexistence between Baal and Jehovah God. Unlike many today, Elijah knew that decisions have consequences He's not going to allow these people to attend this God contest and to leave undecided. They have to conclude, look, I'm either going to follow the one true God or I'm going to follow Baal. If the Lord is God, follow him. Look, atheists are so much smarter than a lot of us. They smell the implications of the Christian faith. If the God of the Bible is true, then you should follow him. And you shouldn't follow him in some half-hearted way. He's not some toy you can play with. He is a king. He is a sovereign to whom he calls you to submit to. Now, you may want a God that you can domesticate and manipulate after your own wills and plans. To put this into New Testament theology, you cannot receive Jesus as Savior and continue to spurn him as Lord because the New Testament knows nothing of this. He doesn't give you that option. There's a clear choice here. And conviction falls here on top of Mount Carmel is God's word is spoken through God's prophet. It brings total silence. Notice, but the people did not answer him a word. That's good. It would have been a bad thing if they tried to rationalize or tried to debate or come up with some argument why they were living the way they were, but there was dead silence, conviction on top of that hill. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Revelation 3. Do you remember when we studied the seven churches of the Revelation as we walked through the whole book of Revelation? And by the way, for those live streaming, it's all available at searchthescriptures.org. 
Jesus said this to the church in Laodicea, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. How does that grab you? God throws up over indifference. And if this is a typical Sunday, there are people who are listening to my voice where God has brought you to your hour of decision. And this might be the last day, the last moment you have to decide, and I hope you will, but you cannot straddle a spiritual fence. You have to decide. That's the challenge. Now, beginning in verse 22, we are given the contest. The contest. Follow verse 22 carefully. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now remember, according to verse 4, there are 100 other preachers who are still around, but they're scared spitless. They're hiding in a cave. And so Elijah reminds here the sons of Israel the odds in order to emphasize that, humanly speaking, the contest that they are in is a total impossibility. There are the 450 prophets of Baal. He doesn't even bother to mention the 400 prophets of the Asherah. The odds are 850 to 1. Elijah is a loner, so to speak, but it's a reminder to me that popularity does not always determine reality. Notice the terms as they're spelled out beginning here in verse 23. Now let them give us two oxen, Let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, but put no fire under it, and I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood, and I will not put a fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Now, may I remind you that Baal was the chief deity in the Canaanite pantheon. He was the so-called fertility god who sent rain in order to grow the crops. Archaeology has found a piece of stone written in Eucharitic with these words, Baal throws flashes of lightning to the earth. And so you know that this drought had to have been an embarrassment to the worshipers of Baal. Baal is the one who shoots fire, who throws lightning from heaven. When the lightning would flash, they'd say, that's Baal, that's Baal speaking. And if you've studied ancient history, then you know that the sun, the fire of the universe, was one of the principal objects of worship, not just for this religion, but a plurality of religions. And so Baal is considered to be the Lord of fire, the God of life who brings fertility both through the rain and through the sun which is why you find in First and Second Kings, because they are worshiping a false god that with Baal worship is involved sexual immorality. Why? Because he's the so-called fertility god. And among other things, the scripture reveals that it involved passing their own children through the fire, child sacrifice, offering their own little babies to Baal, the God of fire, and then living in fornication. It was all part of the worship service that these people, Baal followers, were involved in. And so if there is anything that a God of fire ought to be able to do, he ought to be able to light a fire. 
So he says, you call on the name of your God, I'll call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people said, that's a good idea. We like the plan, Elijah. Great idea. Yeah, let's go for it. And so now it's time for the battle of the gods. Now I might pause here for a moment to ask an important question. Why not just send rain dramatically than fire? Why, why not send a, a, a funnel of rain down from heaven? Is that not the need of the hour? Now, Elijah is a man who walked by faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And he is highlighted in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, not by name, but by his deed. He is a man who lived by faith. And so why not bring some powerful, dramatic funnel of rain from heaven? Why fire and not rain? And the answer is simple. Because Elijah wants to see these people come to repentance and forgiveness. And God has already, right from the early chapters of Genesis, laid down the principle that the life is in the blood, and therefore without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There must be sacrifice before there can be blessing. And the ox, the animals that were laid on altar after altar and ultimately in the tabernacle and the temple all prefigured the coming of the Messiah and the work that he would do. And so Elijah comes up with the idea of building an altar and an ox would be laid on the altar and fire would be come down. Why? Because God would need to be propitiated. His wrath needs to be appeased or satisfied because once again, before there can be blessing, there must be sacrifice. And these people had been worshiping and offering sacrifices to the false god Baal. Their hearts had been pulled away. Notice beginning in verse 25. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Oh, Baal, answer us. These prophets are saying, oh, Baal, listen to your priests. Oh, Baal, show Elijah that you really are the one true God. Oh, Baal, answer us. But zero, zippo, nothing happens. The Bible says, but there was no voice and no one answered. The writer does not say Baal did not answer, as if Baal existed and can't answer. But phrasing the sentence the way he phrased it, he makes Baal a non-entity, but there was no voice and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they made. Can you picture this? These prophets are pulling up their robes. They're dancing around the altar. They're trying to get their so-called Baal to bring fire down from heaven. According to verse 27, this happened. When the sun was at the hottest time of the day at its zenith, I mean, if there was an opportunity and an advantage to pull it off, now was the time. We're told it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, call out with a loud voice, for he is a God. Either he is occupied or gone aside or is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. I think he's enjoying himself. And if you read the words carefully, you know this man had a sense of humor. I can see him standing against the tree saying, call out to Baal for he's a God. That's what you say. 
cry a little louder. If he is a God, he ought to be able to hear you. But maybe he needs to have his hearing aid turned up. Maybe he's a little bit hard of hearing, so shout a little bit louder. Or maybe he's occupied, he's talking to someone else, and he can't talk to two people at the same time. In fact, the Hebrew word here, occupied, was used of someone in deep conversation or meditation or thought. So shout a little louder, you need to get his attention. Or maybe he's gone aside. The New King James says he's busy. The Old King James says he's pursuing. It's a Hebrew euphemism. It's one of the few times in all of the scriptures where you find someone described as going to the bathroom. Literally, he is relieving himself. Picking up this euphemism, the L.E.B. translation renders it. Perhaps he is meditating or he's using the bathroom. Hey, guys, you know, Bill, he's away for a little while. Listen, if you don't think there's any humor in the Bible, it's your problem. Elijah then adds, or maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's out there vacationing by the Mediterranean Sea. Perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. I hope you notice the progression here. First, there's a moderate cry. There's followed by a dance. They begin to howl and shout. And now after Elijah mocks them, this satanically inspired religion goes into a deeper frenzy. Notice verse 28. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to the custom with swords and lances until the blush gushed out of them. To show Baal just how sincere they really are, they mutilate their own bodies until the blood gushed out. Mark it well, my friends, if sincerity somehow could get you into heaven, if sincerity somehow could get you saved, then these men would all be in the kingdom. These are the most sincere of all people. How many Christians have confronted unbelievers who said, well, God knows my heart, and God knows how sincere I am. Sincerity never got anyone into heaven. There are people who every week attend church who shout amen when the preacher preaches, who sing and they mean it, they pray and they mean it. There are a lot of people who are trying to work their way into heaven. They think they are righteous, but they have never humbled themselves and relied on Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection alone to save them. They are sincere, but they are sincerely wrong because they have the wrong object for their faith. Notice verse 29. When midday was passed, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered, and no one paid attention. I'm sure they were never so humiliated in all their lives, and I can just picture them in exhaustion, flopping and failing and panning there in the dust of the ground. Then Elijah, the lone prophet of God, steps into the ring. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to us. Move in a little closer. I don't want you to miss a thing. I don't want you to think there's any sleight of hand, that there's any trickery happening here in my methodology. He wants them to see the whole process so that God Almighty gets all the glory. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah was not about to use the pagan altar that these worshipers of Baal have used. 
And God's altar had been torn down because the people had been worshiping Baal and not the one true God. So we're told in verse 31, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel shall be your name. You remember that from Genesis. There are 12 stones, one for each tribe. And that's significant because though the kingdom is divided into two halves, north and south, Israel and Judah, 10 tribes in the north and two in the south. In God's perspective, he still, still sees them as one people under a single Lord, a single covenant with a single destiny. So with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in places and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And by the way, the Hebrew word that is rendered here, pitchers, is a specific word that refers to a very large vessel. And so the King James renders it barrels. It's a sizable container. And let me just interject here for a moment because the critics of the Bible love to pick out passages like this. They say, you see, here's a contradiction in the Bible. There's a drought in the land. There's obviously no water. So where could he have gotten these four barrels of water to pour over the sacrifice three different times? Well, first remember, the drought is most severe in Samaria. They are now on Mount Carmel. Verse two of this chapter tells us too, that not only was it especially severe in Samaria, but second, here in Mount Carmel, we know even to this day that there are underground springs, and it's very possible that some of those springs were functioning. But third, again, if you've been there, you have a commanding view of the Mediterranean Sea. And no doubt, possibly, Elijah, knowing what he was going to do and how the contest would unfold that day, he had those sons of Israel crate up barrels of water from the Mediterranean Sea because he knew that salt water could work just as well as fresh. However it happened, he soaks the burnt offering in the wood and he says, I don't think that's quite wet enough. So he says, do it a second time. They did it a second time. It's still not wet enough. Do it a third time. They did it a third time. He has four barrels of water and three times poured over the sacrifice. By this time, it is one big soggy mess. The pagans are probably thinking that Elijah has really been dumb, that his God's chances of success are about zero, that he's not a very bright prophet. He's a stupid prophet. They know that wet wood does not burn but Elijah stacks the deck against God so that when the fire comes down from heaven, there is absolutely no mistake that this is an act of God. Elijah is setting the stage so there will be no question that the one true God is at work when the miracle takes place. And we'll see that miracle tomorrow when we conclude our message, The Great Showdown from 1 Kings chapter 18. We're in a mini-series looking at the life of the prophet Elijah. To listen again to today's study, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 
888-7478 and requesting program ELI2. Have you ever been to Israel? If not, you need to see the many places you may have only read about in the Bible. Dr. Brogy will be leading two trips in early and mid-October. Under his guidance and through the accompanying devotionals, the Bible will literally come alive for you. The deadline to register is rapidly approaching, so get all the details online at stsisraeltour.com and experience the trip of a lifetime. Tomorrow, the conclusion of The Great Showdown. Join us then as we search the scriptures.